Into the Weird, Episode 7, Miscegenation and Monster Mags. Welcome to Into the Weird, a podcast exploring the madness and the magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of Comics. I'm your host, Herman Lowe, and for you longtime listeners of Into the Weird, I have some sad news, um, news that really breaks my heart to impart to you listeners, but um, it's something that um, has been coming for a while now, and it pertains to my co-host Grant. Grant has taken a time out from podcasting uh, due to some uh, events happening in his life. Um, he's very busy. He's got a new job and family concerns and so forth. So Grant won't be with us for the foreseeable future. He might return. I hope he does. We started this podcast together. We're best mates and I dearly hope that I can convince him to once more sit in and help me to put Into the Weird on the airwaves. But in the interim, we've got someone else on the docket, someone who's decided to become a permanent part of Into the Weird. And I can't be happier because he's one of our best friends as well. Um, long time collaborator of mine and of Grant's. But I'll announce him later, or I'll let him introduce himself when we come to that. For now, I just want to say I'm going to get some preliminaries out of the way. I want to thank the great band Seven Kingdoms for once again letting us use their song In the Walls for our podcast music. And then also, if you want to send any feedback or reach us, here at Into the Weird, you can do so by sending an email to sinkintotheweird at gmail.com or you can visit the blog at sinkintotheweird.com. And then I also want to say that uh, today we're going to be discussing Doctor Strange again. So for you Doctor Strange fans who have been getting sick of Morbius and Man-Thing and all of the other way out weird characters we've been doing, you'll be happy to know that we're talking about Stephen Strange again today. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Marvel Premiere number four, featuring Doctor Strange from September 1972. Mm-hmm. 
Hey there, weird listeners. This is Herman, back from a long hiatus. And um, today's a very special show because we're welcoming a guest to Into the Weird. He's a longtime supporter of the show, and he has recently agreed to be our third chair permanently. So I'd like all you listeners to welcome a very special person, a horror meister, blogger, and overall great guy, Mr. Billy D, to the show. Hi, Billy. How are you? Great, Herman. How are you, my friend? No, I'm fine, man. I'm so glad you could finally, you know, um, find some time <laughs> to be on the show. <laughs> Not that time was an issue, but thanks, man. We really appreciate you being here. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. You and Grant have uh, been uh, one of my favorite podcasts on Into the Weird, and of course, you on the Long Box of Darkness as well. Two of my favorite shows that I would always look forward to hearing. Really, really enjoy what you guys have done. Thanks, man. Nice of you to say. Well, I mean, uh, obviously... Uh, Grant's not here, but he might return uh, as a guest in the future again. But right now, you know, life being what it is, he's very busy with family and he's also got a new job. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see him again in the future. For now, though, Billy, I'm, I just want to tell the listeners a little bit about how this happened. Basically, you were with us from the beginning. Um, you were one of the first listeners, the first people to give us constructive feedback. And we wanted to have you on the show since the, the very get-go. Uh, of Into the Weird, but um, things just never gelled, things just never happened, and that's probably because of um, Grant and my weird recording schedules. But um, finally, you know, um, I'm very happy that you and I could sit you know, aside some permanent time slot that we can use to record and make the show a little bit more consistent. So, again, I, I really appreciate that. Thanks, man. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like you said, it's a going to be a good thing to be consistent and get the show out and keep those listeners happy yeah no that's right and uh you know i'm very excited because you're a horror fan like myself but you're also a massive dr strange fan billy so that got me to thinking you know what are your comic book origins i i know we've discussed this in private but just for the listeners could you tell us a little bit uh, something about yourself and how you came up with your blog um which is how i met you uh, on facebook magazines and monsters Sure, yeah. So my comic book history, um, I'll make it quick here, is is kind of funny. I'm mostly a Marvel guy, but the first comic book I ever read was a library edition of DC uh, Origins for their superheroes like Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman. Um, so it's kind of odd that I became a, mostly a Marvel guy, <laughs> but uh, that was actually at the local library uh, where I read my first comics. And I didn't actually start you know, reading heavily or collecting until probably around 1990, uh, when I was old enough to get a part-time job and make some money and start getting the the, uh, the medium very heavy. And except for one little break, uh, I've been heavy since in it. Um, just love it. And yeah, huge Doctor Strange fan. Um, the first Doctor Strange I ever read, if I remember correctly, was the 1974 series I picked up a few back issues of. And it was just, I was just blown away. Uh, I think it may have been the Roger Stern material. Right. And I just, oh, I, I couldn't get enough of it. And I just thought, this is great. And then I went back further and just went in every direction with Doctor Strange and could not get enough of the character. I mean, I love Thor as well. Oh, uh, yeah. And Captain America, too. He's one of my favorites. His, you know, Bronze Age stuff, the stuff Steve Englehart did with him. 
Roger Stern and John Byrne too. That short little run there is just magnificent. But yeah, Doctor Strange has always been, you know, pretty much my number one guy. Just can't get enough of him. I don't read anything current, but boy, everything from his, you know, early days with Ditko all the way up until yeah. His well, 1980s, oh, blows me away. Well, I mean, that makes sense, Billy, because on Twitter, where you're very active, and, you know, I, I love the posts that you always <laughs> come up with daily, uh, always posting some great images and some great, um, you know, synopses from comics that you loved back in the day. Your name is Doc Strange. So that's that's how I first, you know, how my eye was first um, caught by you know, your Twitter feed is the fact that you're a massive Doctor Strange fan and, um, you know, your moniker is Doc Strange. And uh, then you've probably got one of the best Twitter handles, which is at Billy Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's that that's awesome. And that even, you know, appealed to me more than Doctor Strange. <laughs> well, I tell you what, it's, that's how my warped mind works. I decided to get onto Twitter. I think it was... It was pretty early on. I think it was around 2009, maybe. I'd have to go back and look, but it's been quite a while. And literally, I thought, oh, look at all these other people and their colorful names. They were very, uh, you know, some of them were just flat out blew me away. I'm like, well, that was inventive. And I thought, what could I do? It, it did not take long. And literally, that's the first bizarre thing that came to my mind. I'm like, yep, sounds good. Oh, well, that is awesome, man. That is awesome. I, I have to apologize because I keep saturating you with uh, Billy D. Williams gift, gifts, you know, on uh, Twitter. But that, that's got nothing to do with it at all. Well, he's a, he's a big fan of uh, Colt 45 back in the day. He was a big beer sponsor. <laughs> Which was hilarious seeing those commercials. You know, there's this Star Wars guy, and he's you know, yeah. now he's doing beer commercials. I so still, that was hilarious when I was a kid. I Love still it. watch that on YouTube every time I want to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yep, oh, hilarious. So Billy, now um, I think we can both agree that you and I find the Doctor Strange run in the Marvel premiere. You know, the, one of the best Doctor Strange storylines of all time. Um, mostly for the fact that it incorporates a lot of horror. And also features one of, if not the best Doctor Strange artist of all time, Frank Bruner, uh, whom we are both big fans of. So would you say oh, yeah. would you say that this is your favorite run of Doctor Strange comics, or or would it extend into the Gene Colan uh, Doctor Strange series, which came after the Marvel premiere stuff? For me, once uh, Steve Englehart and Frank Bruner uh, met and teamed up, that work which spilled over then into the regular series for maybe, who boy, what was it, eight or ten issues there? Yeah, ten, yeah. That, to me, that work, starting in the Marvel premiere and leading into that, it all seemed like one big storyline. I think those two guys created some really good, uh, to use a phrase, magic, <laughs> with their work there. It was just, I, I mean, I enjoy the Ditko stuff. I enjoy even a little bit more than the Ditko stuff. I enjoy the Roy Thomas and Gene Colan stuff that preceded this, but this to me, this, it took the character t uh, to another level. I, I think it's, it's hard to deny that it, it took that character to another level and incorporating the horror elements. And, you know, I mean, Gene Colan and Roy Thomas did a little bit of that too, but this just went to a, a whole other step. And then some of these villains and other characters that were brought in are just, you know, mind blowing. Yeah. I agree. And, uh, you know, I can't wait until we get to that storyline with uh, the, the CZ Neg, 
Um, oh. You know, oh, that is a great storyline with the sorcerer. Oh. We'll talk about that. That caused a lot of controversy at the time. <laughs> Religiously. Yes, yes. Religious controversy. <laughs> but we'll get to that soon, Billy. I just want to remind the listeners, um, you know, as Grant and I used to do in the past, we sort of alternate between Doctor Strange and another Bronze Age title. So today we're back with talking about Stephen Strange and we're going to be focusing on Marvel premiere issue number four, which obviously follows on the storyline that Grant and I discussed um, in episode five, uh, where, if I remember correctly, Billy, um, Doctor Strange had a run-in with Nightmare. And Nightmare sort of hinted at the fact that there's a larger, more ominous, uh, deadlier enemy uh, in the shadows waiting to take out Doctor Strange and the Ancient One. So this is the continuation of that storyline. Yeah, that previous issue was very, very good. I mean, you had Stan Lee doing the dialogue, but Barry Windsor Smith doing the script and the art. Um, and he, what he did was, you know, make it seem as if a bus almost hit Steven. Yeah. And then he kept walking, <laughs> and then all of a sudden all these bizarre things start happening to him. And then you find out later that he, he had indeed was hit by a bus and was you know being attacked by Nightmare. And I thought that was brilliant on his part. Yeah, and it all sort of thematically ties together because, as I mentioned in the previous episodes, um, this is where Stephen Strange goes into the Lovecraftian Cthulhu mythos type you know, universes where he fights those type of foes, those amorphous mm -hmm. kind of magical creatures. So we're moving away from, from beings like Dormammu and, and Nightmare. But, you know, the even though he fought Nightmare in the previous issue, it sort of um, uh, gels with H.P. Lovecraft's dream sequence, you know, of, like for the, the um, Unknown Kadath uh, novella he did, the dream sequence of Unknown Kadath, and those uh, books where he writes about these cosmic revelations in the form of these drug-induced dreams, which wasn't really drug-induced, mm -hmm. but, you know, People are in asylums, they're, um, you know, on all types of medication and they see these creatures and more often than not, obviously it's real <laughs> in the Lovecraft universe. It's not just <laughs> in their minds. There's a definite reality tied into the dreams. And that's what what's leading Stephen Strange from the nightmare um, uh, issue where he fought him into this one now, because now we're in the part of the storyline where he's going to face at least the beginnings of what Nightmare um, hinted at, which is uh, he's going to struggle against this cosmic entity which is lying in the shadows waiting just to, to pounce on the magical beings of the Marvel Universe and take over or consume the world. We don't know anything more about uh, their intentions at this point in time. But just to give a brief um, introduction to the comic and then we can jump into it, Billy. Um, are you ready? Sounds great. Let's go for it. Okay. So, first off, the comic was, of course, written by um, someone that horror fans would know, uh, Archie Goodwin. Um, not by Stan Lee this time. Archie used to be the writer in, of many Warren magazines, Creepy and Eerie. He was also the editor-in-chief there for a very long while, in the 60s. And then eventually he started working for Marvel, even though he was also working for many other companies. He even wrote under a pseudonym for Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. <laughs> so he was all over the place. <laughs> wow. Yeah, freelance writer. And he specializes in horror, so he's obviously a huge fan of H.P. Lovecraft. So Archie was uh, drafted by Stan to 
um, write the next part of this tale. Or probably Roy Thomas got him, I'm not quite sure. Uh, Roy Thomas was the editor at this point in time. Um, now this comic's interesting, Billy, because it was illustrated by Barry Windsor Smith again, uh, who also did the previous issue, but inked by Frank Bruner. And you can really see Bruner's style sort of uh, challenging Windsor Smith's brilliance here. Um, even though it's still more, I'd say, 70% Windsor Smith, uh, you could definitely see some of Frank Bruner's flourishes in there. Which is, yeah, which I'm sure is, this is kind of what got him in there too. You know, what I mean, they saw his his work here, even just inking. And when Bru when uh, Barry Windsor Smith moved on, it was a pretty easy fit to put him right in there on this book. I agree. Yeah, I've got a bit of a, an anecdote that I'll share a bit later about Frank and how he he got into this business. But this is definitely what got him noticed. You know, um, especially among fans. You know, this is where they decided where they saw oh something big is in the works here, art wise. And, um, you know, uh, lettered by John Constanza, the cover itself is also by Frank Bruner and, and inked by Tom Palmer. And then um, I think Goodman did a great job on the writing. I'm going to give a brief synopsis just to um, get the readers up to speed. And then I won't put in too much details, Billy, because I want to discuss some of the the funny, <laughs> funny bits and, and beats of this story, which I don't want to just spoil right off the bat. OK, so here we go cool. with the synopsis. Dr. Strange, fresh from his victory over the demonic nightmare, returns to his sanctum sanctorum wounded and out of sorts, desperately in need of rest. He is aghast to find a complete stranger waiting for him in his parlor, a stranger who had taken the liberty of building a fire in the fireplace and making himself right at home. The stranger turns out to be young Ethan Stoddart, a native of a mysterious place called Starksboro. A dreary and reclusive little seaside town Ethan had managed to escape at a young age with his school sweetheart Bethel Doan. Bethel has since returned to Starksboro, only to mysteriously vanish about three weeks ago. Ethan pleads for Stephen Strange's help, asking him to assist in locating his fiancée, whom he thinks might be the victim of a cult she had been researching in that strange little town. Stephen agrees to accompany Ethan to Starksboro as he senses a link between the mystery of Ethan's fiancée and the coming evil that his enemy Nightmare had foretold in the previous issue. After arriving in Starksboro, Stephen notices that his magic is unexplainably waning and he finds it hard to even control his astral projection in order to communicate with his mentor, the Ancient One. The townsfolk are also a cause for concern as they appear to be hostile towards all strangers. What's more, all of them appear to have an inhuman reptilian cast to their features. While investigating the old church at the center of Starksboro, Stephen finds that he has been surrounded by a mob of the townies and that Ethan has somehow been corrupted by them. In a fight with Ethan, the master of the mystic arts suddenly finds himself without any power whatsoever as an eerie chant from the mob drains the last vestiges of magic from him. He plummets to the ground with bone-breaking force as even his cloak of levitation fails him. Our story ends with Stephen chained to a sacrificial altar and an ominous proclamation that he will soon be offered as vittles to the snake god, Sliguth. <laughs> now, Billy, I, I don't know really how to pronounce Liguth. There isn't a pronunciation in glossary included. 
But um, I'm just going to say Sliguth. I don't know. How do you pronounce it? <laughs> I'm a Sligoth guy, yeah. Sligoth. Pretty close. Sligoth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a uh, fascinating um, storyline here. Definitely you, you see some of Archie Goodman, Goodwin's um, trademark horror chops rearing their heads here. So, um, Billy, first I want to ask you, um, let's first focus on the cover, though. Um, what do you think about the cover, though? I mean, this is also Frank Bruner. Um, uh, no Barry Smith on this cover. Um, one of his earlier covers. Um, it's pretty good. I mean, you can see when Tom Palmer inks someone, he's a very strong inker. So other than, <clears throat> excuse me, other than his work with Gene Colan, a lot of times his inks seem to overpower a lot of pencilers. Yeah. So you can see a lot of Tom Palmer in the cover. Yeah, that's my main criticism. The cover is not great. I mean, um, as Frank Bruner covers go, this one's not one of his best. Of course, we know that the man is a master of cover art and of interior art. But um, yeah, maybe the Tom Palmer inks, like you say, sort of um, come to the foreground too much and um, too much of Palmer's style impinges on Bruner's but you know the the layout of the cover is Bruner and I don't particularly fancy the layout either it's kind of like one of those covers that reminds me of the DC Silver Age where you know you have to put a character on the cover and you have to give him some dialogue boxes and you kind of have to try to tell the whole story with the cover alone and I don't always like that I like it when the cover has a more sinister uh, mysterious uh, bent to it yeah, there's a lot going on there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the scene itself, one, two, three word bubbles, and then, you know, question mark, re, you know, do you dare enter the world of the weird? And, it's, and then along the bottom, the spawn of Sligoth, like there's a lot going on with this cover. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Too I'm, much. But Too I, much. I, I like the fact that, you know, um, uh, the, the name and the words and everything is sort of on a background of, of red. You know, a, a bit of a mm -hmm. scarlet tint to the whole cover. That that always works for me. You know, you've got the primary colors, the blue, the yellow, the red, Marvel Premiere being written in yellow, and then Doctor Strange in white. But I, I do like the kind of aesthetic appeal of the cover. I just don't like the cover image, which is sort of put right below, you know, the title, where you see Strange, you know, using dialogue no one in their right mind would ever have used in this situation. I mean, it's a lot of exposition, <laughs> a lot of exposition. I can't fly. This accursed town has sapped me of my power. But I must flee. I must. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, you would just say, yeah. "Ah, help!" You know, you're not gonna say all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> or he might even drop something like, you know, by the images of Icon, or the, you know, by the Vashanti. Yeah. But he won't say this. Horios of Hoggins. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw recently on Twitter one of one of the guys we follow. I, I don't know who it is now. I'll find the name just now. Posted that if if Stephen Strange can say utter that you know, line by the hoary host of Hogoth in, in, you know, Avengers Endgame or in the Doctor Strange 2 movie, that would make everybody's day. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> it would. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I, I do like some parts of this cover, but, you know, I think we can both agree, Billy, it's not uh, the best Frank Bruner cover we'll ever get to see. We'll still get to the good ones. Yeah, it's a little, just a little too busy, too much going on. If they would have toned it back a little bit, it would have been much better. But yeah, it's it's too too much going on. That's right. Now, Billy, um, you and I, um, being horror fans, 
Uh, are you a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, of, of the Cthulhu mythos, if not his writing, per se? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I've, I mean, I haven't read a ton of his. Um, I've actually listened to audiobooks, probably maybe about 10 or 12 of them and read a couple. But yeah, oh, love his work. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, a little dated with some of its uh... racism. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Racist yeah, references. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the concepts and, you know, the world building, things like that are still relevant today. They still blow a lot of things out of the water that are have come since um and he died very young too so you know what he did in a short amount of time was crazy but yeah other than if you if you can uh get past those things um that he wrote you yeah. know in, yeah. in, in you know in regards to you know people of color which is you know it's a shame but it's if you can move past that it's it's incredible work you know yeah. very it's yeah. It blows your mind. It is very like <laughs> you can get really sucked in. Yeah, you can. In, in terms of horror, you can really see where he created something completely new. I mean, it was gothic horror before that, and then Lovecraft came and he created this whole new. Uh, dare I call it American horror? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say American horror, because yeah. um, you know, it's it's got a whole new element of fear attached to. You know, I think the name for it is cosmicism, which is the fear of cosmic entities right. that view us as nothing more than. Uh, bugs on a slide or or ants. <laughs> ants yeah exactly so you know that's a whole new fear you know so it's so a hellboy you know, it's funny and, comics like hellboy and, yeah. and stuff and you know mike mignola they riff on that that that's their whole the dark horse horror universe is all based on that and and uh, early marvel had some of that um yeah it's funny too because this issue and the next few all have on the very first page featuring concepts created by robert e howard and i've had some you know online discussion with some people about this and the uh lovecraft purists get you know kind of a, a little put off by that because they think oh no i mean uh howard did write some horror too some really good stories actually and yeah. he was pen pals with lovecraft so maybe he was you know riffing on some of his concepts a little bit too but they both wrote about uh serpent men which is mm. basically what this cult, you know, yeah, kind this, of is. This cult that that uh, Stephen's going to encounter and that the uh, fiance of this Ethan Stoddard guy's uh, researching. Yeah, you're right. I think the 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 main two references that I could spot in this comic, which um, warrants the Robert E. Howard mention, is um, the one of the the grimoires that they mention in this book. Now, before I I, I say the name which is a very difficult name. Billy, uh, that's one of my biggest um, and uh, the loves of the horror genre. One of the horror tropes I really, really dig um, is the, the concept of a, a black grimoire. You know, we're talking mm -hmm. here about Lovecraft's Necronomicon or, you mm -hmm. know, um, uh, some, something like the uh, Necronomicon Ex Mortis from the... Uh, Evil Dead universe, stuff like that. You know, I love mm -hmm. a, a good grimoire. And of course, Marvel has the Darkhold, which is mm. based on the Necronomicon, which we'll talk about a lot later on. But here they name drop a couple of grimoires while Stephen is uh, asking his, I think, the ancient one for advice. Because um, the, the one I think that Archie Goodwin came up with in this book, I couldn't find any other references to it, is the Thanatosian Tomes. Mm -hmm. And that is the book that... Um, Bethel uh, is researching the girl that got lost in this town that got, went missing. She's researching this cult that 
uses the writings of this book, the Thanatosian tomes. And then the Ancient One name drops a couple of other uh, black grimoires, fictional grimoires. <laughs> he says, um, okay, the, the Black Sea Scrolls. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but... <laughs> yeah, it's like a biblical thing there. They're yeah. pulling out, right? <laughs> that's right. And then he, he references um, one of Robert E. Howard's uh, characters, von Junst, um, the Unaussprechlichten Kulten, which is German for unspeakable cults. And mm -hmm. that is a book that Robert E. Howard created in his horror story. Mm -hmm. So that warrants the Robert E. Howard you know, name drop. Uh, the mention that he created some of these concepts, yep. but also when they mention um, the big bad, uh, Sligoth, uh, he was the god of the serpent men of Volusia. Now, Volusia, mm -hmm. where do we see a lot of Volusia in Marvel Comics? Well, yeah, that's Cull right that's there. That's right. The, yeah. the Thurian Age, yeah. Yeah, the Thurian Age of Cull and the pre as they like to call it, the pre cataclysmic age, <laughs> which I mm -hmm. love. So this yes. is before the Hyborian Age, before Conan. And Robert E. Howard, of course, wrote Cull before he did Conan, and he wasn't happy with the character. And then eventually, in my mind, he came up with the exact same character and just gave him a bit more of a womanizing bent and a bit more humor. <laughs> you know, so basically Conan is Cull um, without the facial scar and with, uh, you know, he's more appealing to girls and he's more, you know, uh, apt to crack some jokes every now and then. So a um, more successful character. But, you know, Cull had dealings with the serpent folk um, of Volusia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they basically worship this Sliguth, who's the enemy that Strange will face in this, this issue. But um, I'm sure that you would agree that Archie Goodwin, you know, different from Stan Lee, even though Stan Lee is a good humorist, Archie Goodwin in interjected or injected some humor into this issue, didn't he, Billy? Um, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you have this 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 um, one panel where Stephen and and uh, Ethan Stoddard they're traveling towards um, Starksboro, the town, to investigate the disappearance of Bethel, and then they're on the they're, they're taking a bus, but then they're stopping to have some snacks, and Stephen's eating a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know which panel I mean, right? Yeah. And then um, you know this kid Ethan Stoddard's telling him about the history of the town of Starksboro and then he says Dr. Strange you haven't been listening to a word I've said <laughs> Dr. Strange <laughs> says uh, not quite true Ethan but you know I'm, I've become so used to dealing with cosmic mysteries beyond the ken of mortals that I'd forgotten the delight of the taste of a simple <laughs> hot dog <laughs> and Ethan just says oh yeah but he's <laughs> He's got this really teed off expression on his face when he says it too. He's like, "Oh, Doctor Strange, you 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 know you're a dick." <laughs> and oh, and I love that though because there is always a part of that to Doctor Strange, and, and like he's aloof, you know, he's almost yeah. thinks he's a little bit better than everyone else. That's right. Well, we'll we'll get to that, Billy, when we talk some defenders issues because Ooh. nowhere is Doctor Strange's dickishness more pronounced than in the defenders. <laughs> Oh yeah, he'll be like Hulk, you big green idiot! Like it's it's crazy. He's yeah. he's out of control in that comic. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I love it. I mean, I don't love arrogant people per se. I just this is Stephen Strange's character, you know. So, yeah. but you know, um, uh, that's that's a uh, topic I quickly want to address, Billy. You know, when you you talk about Love Lovecraft and early Marvel, they couldn't be more different. I mean, early Marvel was very 
socially conscious. So they championed the rights of minorities and black folks most of the time, sometimes, not always, but they tried. But then you've got Lovecraft, who basically views other races as a type of horror, <laughs> you know, a horror element. Well, yeah, like, yeah, he was almost like, you know, they were like subhuman. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of how he wrote them. Which... And, you know, it's it's there was a lot of that going on back then, as we know. So it's not, uh, you know, surprising. But I almost feel like maybe I think Roy Thomas was behind a lot of that Um bringing these concepts in and i almost feel like roy thomas was a bit of a bit of a throwback for the 70s that he was into a lot of older things where i think he didn't i believe i'm just spitballing here but i think he may have thought hey i can you know kind of borrow some of these concepts and throw these names out there there weren't a lot of people very well read on you know howard and lovecraft especially in regards to you know yeah stuff like that I know what you mean, but I think Archie Goodwin, you know, he does a good job of sort of um, doing it in the Bronze Age Marvel style at the time, which is, you know, um, inclusivity is good. And, you know, um, being a bit more sensitive towards these issues is the way to go. So they don't focus too much on on that here, because if you think about the story is basically about miscegenation, except it's not between races, it's between humans and the serpent folk because we get to a part in the story right billy where ethan and stephen strange they start to realize that the people in this town are not quite human you know there's a a smattering of alien or monstrous uh, monstrousness to their um genealogy and um Mm -hmm. this comes from directly from hp lovecraft's story the shadow over innsmouth except there you have fish people (laughs) you know humans interbreeding with the deep ones the spawn of dagon so in many ways this story is a ripoff of lovecraft's shadow over innsmouth but it has enough changes for me to to let that slide but i think they handled it tastefully they didn't focus too much on the miscegenation aspect of it and um you know like you said lovecraft is a product of his time it's reprehensible that he you know was a racist but, you know, um, my grandpa, you know, he was like that, too. And, um, you know, although I despise that part of him, you know, he, he grew up and he was indoctrinated by those folks. Now, that is no excuse for that, if you know what I mean. There are many, uh, you know, situations in life where you could um, encounter uh, sensitivity towards these issues and then ch- make a change in yourself, you know, become a different person, a better person. He didn't do that. But Lovecraft definitely didn't do that. But, you know, I think the subsequent writers and artists who took Lovecraft's stories and ran with them, they they sort of uh, changed that. Guy, I'm, t- I'm thinking guys like Alan Moore and so forth, you know, they, they used those racist notions of Lovecraft and they kind of softened them and made them more towards, okay, this is the monstrousness of otherworldly creatures. It's not racism per se. You know, so I, I like the fact that, you know, from here on out, we we are still firmly in the early Marvel 70s where people are more aware of social issues and and it's not really affecting the story at all. Or would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, it was, you know, things were a product of their time. But like you said, there were 
writers that came afterwards that you know said hey there's a, a good foundation here for some stories and characters and things like that but they, they took the good stuff with them and they left the bad stuff behind where it belonged in the past exactly i mean if you think about it the original story <clears throat> excuse me about the sh um fr the shadow over Innsmouth. um the character there he the main character was a very racist character the horror came from him not being able to deal with other races and um, when he went to Innsmouth on his tour he was very i think his name was Obed Marsh. Uh, I'm not sure now. No, no, no. Obed Marsh was one of the other characters in the book. But he was walking around the town and he was being horrified by these people that he saw that looked so different from himself. But Stephen Strange is technically him in this story. However, Stephen Strange never becomes like the character where he's like horrified because he has seen things a thousand times worse <laughs> in his life as a magician. This is not horrifying to him. For, this is just another day in the life of Doctor Strange. And Stephen, as we know, has dealt with alien beings and good and bad. So he's not at all racist. He's very open-minded. I, I guess you'd have to be if you want to be the Sorcerer Supreme. And um, so that's what I like about the, the fact that Stephen Strange is the protagonist. And he treats everybody equally in this book. And he doesn't see it as horrific or strange that these people look different at all. <clears throat> yeah no it doesn't uh it doesn't seem to bother him other than you know once he realizes it's a cult it's like uh oh you know that yeah. anyhow he knows he's in for it <laughs> yeah now this is another point i want to touch on billy the fact that they do again follow the trope of hobbling dr strange uh he's so powerful mm -hmm. that if a writer wants to do something with him that were to ramp up the tension for readers you kind of have to find a way to negate his omniscient magic so when he enters this town he suddenly st starts to feel this draining effect something is sapping his strength his magical strength and um normally i don't like that i like it if he faces a foe that's so powerful that his amazing powers are warranted you know Stephen Stephen strange's powers are warranted to you know that he can meet this foe toe to toe but in this story i like it because at one point in time they, they become trapped in the church <clears throat> him uh, him and ethan Doctor Strange and Ethan, and then, you know, the the townsfolks around the church. So there's this real sense of dread and horror because Strange doesn't have any of his magic. So it's now kind of like a Children of the Corn type of horror setting where they're trapped in this church and they see these strange, this this um, this uh, inverted cross and the symbol of this dragon type lizard, the symbol of Sliguth. And so I, at this point in time in the comic, Billy, I was really feeling the, the, the horror, the tension. I don't know about you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's tough to, when you build a character up to be very, very powerful, it's hard to come up with, you know, character after character after character, every issue that is, well, they're more powerful than him, but, you know, there's some kryptonite that, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term, that has to, like, depower him almost. So it's almost like, you know, a fair fight or almost, you know, even it's the, the other antagonist is even uh, more powerful than him but yeah they they did a very good job in this actually you know showing that there are things that haven't come up yet in this uh in dr strange's history that are even as powerful or more powerful than him that came from you know other dimensions or whatever but it's i think archie goodwin he is he's a legend he's such a great writer and anybody that ever worked for him or with him when he was an editor will tell you he was a great guy and a great editor too and I think he did a great job in this story, like, you know, trying to balance, 
showing, you know, Doctor Strange has some power, but then there are other things that he doesn't even know about yet, even being the Sorcerer Supreme, because he's still pretty young in being the Sorcerer. Well, actually, he's not the Sorcerer Supreme yet. He just... <laughs> yeah, that will happen not until later in this a little story. Later. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out yeah. about that soon enough. Yeah, so yeah. he's, yeah, he's not even the, the top dog yet, so he still has some learning to do, and it's... It, Goodwin does a fantastic job. Yeah, no, I mean, you could really see his experience as a horror writer um, of short anthology type tales coming to the fore here because this is a one-off story. Uh, admittedly, it ends on a cliffhanger with Stephen, you know, chained to this altar about to be sacrificed to Sleguth, who we never get to see. We never get to see Sleguth in this issue, right, Billy? We just have yeah. his name dropped a couple of times. But um, there's this great sequence in the library which is all Goodwin, where Ethan finally, this is just before he went to the church to meet up with Doctor Strange, he finally finds his lost lady love, Bethel, and she's in the library. And at first, you know, he just sees the back of her head and he recognizes her hairstyle and so forth, so he approaches her. And then when she turns around, he sees the snake-like appearance um, of her facial features and that she has slowly come to change into one of the inhabitants of the town. And then you've got the sequence where he runs from her in terror, in, in abject horror as she stalks towards him and he runs from the library. And then as he runs from the library, you see the other uh, denizens of the library also looking quite monstrous, which is something you never noticed until this point. You just thought, oh, this is an old man with a funny shaped head. That's another person walking with a like a hunchback gait. But actually, <laughs> they're all monstrous <laughs> now. You finally realize that because they've all been uh, interbreeding with these serpent men who serve Sliguth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a great sequence, him fleeing from the library. So, um, yeah, like you said. Yeah. Goodwin did a great job in this one. He's just this this shows you what kind of a writer he is. He's, yeah. he's he did a great job. He's just he's got the chops. He always did. Yeah, I'm hoping to talk more about him on the Long Box of Darkness, Billy. I don't know if you'd ever want to join me talking about some early creepy and and eerie tales that he wrote, but um that's where he really sh uh, shines because he wasn't restrained by the comic book code. So he went full on horror. Uh obviously here he still yeah. had to curb himself a little. But um, overall, Billy, I give this a very high rating. This was a great issue. Lots of tension, lots of anxiety when I read it. I've, I've, I really felt the horror coming through, but also the weirdness of Marvel. You know, the magic, the, the introduction of this um, chthonic universe that Marvel sort of spawned at this time. And um, I really felt that Stephen Strange was in, in real trouble here. You know, without his magic, um, it, it uh, made the story much more appealing to me, even though I know that eventually his intelligence would, you know, uh, win the day, this still was a very enjoyable issue. Um, how how would you rate this this comic? Oh, absolutely! It's it's up there for me too. Um, like I said, I'm a bigger fan of when uh, Engelhart comes on. I think him and uh, Frank Bruner work some real some real good stuff. But this is this is close too. It's it's right behind that for me. Yeah, this is sort I, of absolutely sowing the seeds of that great run. Well, yep. I, I guess, Billy, that wraps it up for our first segment. Um, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then when we come back, we'll do our Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Missteps. So don't go away, listeners. Stay tuned. What do you got to do to get comics around this place? One side, Red. Hey, what the hell's going on here? 
I was warned about you. Take it easy before I have you removed from the Warned? What the fuck are you talking about? Tell him, Steve Dave. Fuck you, fanboy. You two testosterone-seeking He-Man comic with fans finish up with this display of tough guy back and forth. I got some questions I need to answer. Look, who's in there? You gotta ask me nicely. Fuck Alright listeners, we're back and in our next segment, Bronze Age Brilliance and Mighty Marvel Mistips, we'll tell you all about what we loved and mm, I don't want to say hated, right Billy, but what we didn't like about the comic. So <laughs> we'll start with we'll start with Bronze Age Brilliance. What did you find particularly brilliant about this comic? Well, I think if you give Roy Thomas a little credit with plot and then Archie Goodwin with the writing, they, you know, the, the artwork interior is fantastic. But to me, the story stood out even more. I think they did such a good job of bringing those elements from Howard stories and Lovecraft stories into this, uh, into the Marvel Universe. I think that was fantastic. I think it was the perfect time with all of the culture changing with you know just the culture in general but then in comic book reading as well when you look at the the bronze age and all the you know cults and all that stuff was really in the zeitgeist of the times and that was a brilliant brilliant move to it was exactly the perfect time to bring that stuff into comic books and especially doctor strange it was like you know a piece of a puzzle fitting in there they did an excellent job you couldn't have done this in the 60s it would have been way too yeah. out there you know <laughs> in the early mid 60s maybe later 60s you could have got away with it but definitely the 70s was the perfect perfect time for that so that's that's my bronze age brilliance right there probably i think roy thomas bringing that stuff into marvel just like he did with you know the howard conan stuff then too that's a really good point you know that that's a great bit of bronze age brilliance billy um you know for me uh, it's going to be a bit of the writing I think, but not the overall writing of the story. I'm talking specifically here about Archie Goodwin's use of the narration boxes and um, his use of the omniscient narrator in the very beginning. This is something I love from horror tales. If you've got a narrator um, who's not, you know, uh, you're not sure if it's the main character, but it could be the main character. I, I think Alan Moore did this really well in his Swamp Thing run where, you know, there's a narrator in the beginning, you're not sure if it's Swamp Thing himself or it's his subconscious or who it is. But here, Archie's got a bit of brilliant writing in the beginning when we, uh, on the opening splash page uh, of the comic book, we have a, a quote from the Thanatosian tomes, which is very Lovecraftian, very ominous, right, Billy? And it says, Some gods die, others but slumber, and in their dreaming wait for a dawning hour and movers prime and the opening of a gate. And then it's it's um, attributed to a 1623 translation by by the Marquis de Ray. So, um, but that's not the the narration yet. Then we get into the the omniscient narrator, who could be Stephen Strange. You never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in the Sanctum Sanctorum, and he and he turns his head, and then he's not sure, but he hears uh, someone is in someone who's not supposed to be there has intruded. Um, in the Sanctum Sanctorum, and the narration goes, the falling of a shadow to the desert wanderer, it is shade, cool shelter from a merciless sun. To a playful child, it is a thing of wonder, a companion, magical and constant. But to Stephen Strange, returned from fierce and mystic combat with the creature called Nightmare, mind a swim with hints of greater trials pending, 
it can only be a forewarning that danger lurks. <laughs> mm. So it creates right, right off, right from the beginning, it sets the mood for the entire uh, issue. And um, I really, really like that bit of um, Archie Goodwin's uh, writing. And later on in the comic, even you know, in between scenes between Stephen and Wong, you have him writing stuff like. Um, and moving with a lightened tread, the master of magic returns to his mysterious guest. You know, it's something you don't need to know. It's needless exposition, but it's done so elegantly and in such good prose that, you know, I enjoy reading it. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to go with that for my Bronze Age brilliance. I want to say the art as well, because, man, Barry Smith and Bruner killed it on the art once again. I mean, if you look again at that opening splash page, right, Billy, with the curtain, you know, that, that ornate curtain that sort of swirls and Stephen's still sporting the, 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 the clothing that's been torn from the previous issue. Such a mm -hmm. fine attention to detail. But that curtain, man, that is amazing with the folds, the intricate designs. Just that, that panel alone, you know, it makes the art so arresting. But I'm going to have to go with the writing on this one. Archie Goodwin, what a master. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you were saying about reading those uh, narration. I often thought, I wonder if that is the ancient one uh, being oh. the narrator, because you were saying about the whole, you know, good point. Uh, the some gods die, others are slumbering. Yeah. If you look at the part where Doctor Strange in his astral form is talking to the ancient one, the ancient one, after he says about you know the the Black Sea Scrolls and that. Then he says, "All tell of a cosmic obscenity that slumbers." <laughs> <laughs> oh, what and a I great thought, oh, line! Yeah, yeah, Archie Goodwin, just fantastic. But yeah, that's, I read that. And I'm like, oh, and then of course you think, you know, if you've read all the way to the end of this saga, you know, there is a an, an ultimate entity that is, you know, slumbering a, a giant squid that won't be named yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get I to him. Not to his slumber. My favorite yeah. Doctor oh. Strange villain of all time is him <laughs> he's a good one yeah but yeah i love that narration there mm. with uh dovetailing back from the beginning about slumbering i mean <laughs> i agree obscenity that wow. what a line what a line mm. <laughs> yes. no that's great billy no so um let's move on to the mighty marvel missteps um i'll let you go first again uh what were the faux okay. pas perpetrated by the creative team in this issue i only had two and you know one of them I think both of them are kind of nitpicks. Some people might think they're a big deal, but to me, they're really not. But the first one is obviously, <laughs> how in the world <laughs> did Ethan get into the Sanctum Sanctorum? I don't understand that. Like, usually it's protected by magical spells, and yes. he just, it just, it appears he just walked right in because we know Wong didn't let him in. You yeah. know what I mean? Because he's, he's slumbering, as Dr. Strange says, but. That kind of was like, oh, okay. And then the only other nitpick I would have would be when you mentioned earlier when uh, Ethan turns his girlfriend around in the library and she says, are you satisfied like a serpent? <laughs> she really doesn't look that scary. Like it's kind of like the big reveal of the whole book. And she looks like she might have a rash on her face, but that's about it. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, like it's supposed to I be really scales. They would have made her more. Yeah, yeah, she should have been way more frightening looking. Yeah. Like the like the ones like the people on the cover. You know, a couple of them look, you know, zombie, vampiric, you know, very scary. 
and then you get to her inside and well, she doesn't look all that scary i thought oh they could have done better there but other than that that's that's all i got yeah those are two good points yeah you see i am um, i agree with you on both of them mine is kind of tied to yours billy um First off, um, what I have to mention is Stephen's reprehensible treatment of Wong <laughs> in the beginning of the story. <laughs> now, he completely loses his temper, and he does it in a very cold way, which is even worse than shouting at Wong. He sort of dismisses him and said, you know, how could you have let this <laughs> unknown stranger into the Sanctum Sanctorum? Sanctorum? I'll hear your excuses later. You're dismissed. Get me some tea. You know, which is a horrible, a horrible thing. And also Wong ke that keeps calling him master all the time. Uh, Grant and I have spoken about this before. We hate that, the fact that Wong is a servant. But later on, Wong becomes more of, you know, his own character. And he's more like a student. And then he becomes stranger's equal in many respects. Um. So, you know, I hate that part of it. Uh, that's going to be one of my, my uh, missteps here. Um, but uh, in terms of the story, I have to agree with you, Billy. There's a glaring error in the beginning. But then Goodwin, I think, as he was progressing through the writing, he sort of realized that. So he s tried to smooth that over. He tried to fix that by saying there's an outside force acting upon the sanctum that put Wong to sleep that, you know, weakened the magical barriers of the Sanctum Sanctorum and that allowed Ethan to come into the uh, Sanctorum unannounced. Now, um, okay, that does sound a little bit more plausible, but it, I mean, come on, it's impossible because then any of Stephen Strange's magical enemies can just, with impunity, walk in and just murder him whenever they want in his sleep. <laughs> so right, yeah. you're right, that doesn't make sense. But I think... At the end of the tale, we do get to realize that this was all planned. Ethan himself was a plant. He was, uh, even though he didn't know it, he was completely innocent. He was sent by the cult of Sleguth into the outside world expressly for the purpose of contacting Stephen Strange and um, acquiring his help and bringing him to Starksboro so that Sleguth could take him out, which will remove an obstacle um, for the eventual opening of the way, as they call it, for this cosmic entity that we've hinted at to come to Earth uh, without anyone standing in his way. So this was all an elaborate plan. But this plan itself, like you said, doesn't really make a lot of sense because it hinges upon the fact that you could easily penetrate the defenses of the Master of the Mystic Arts and this is not even the big bad yet. This is just one of his henchmen. <laughs> Slaguth <laughs> eventually just turns out... I mean, he is very powerful, this this serpent god. But he uh, allows this complete ordinary human to penetrate you know, the defenses of the Sanctum Sanctorum and to put Wong to sleep you know, easily. But also, I mean, adversely, this could point to the fact that this is the greatest foe that Strange ha has faced uh, ever. And that his magic is so powerful that he could actually affect this, right, Billy? But I, I'm just not buying it. I mean, we're talking Sorcerer Supreme here. Or not yet, but we're talking Master of the Mystic Arts, Stephen Strange. You can't just do that. So I think, yes, that's a bit of clumsy plot, you know, um, over there. But other than that, you know, I, I, I find uh, the rest of the story very uh, engaging and very tight. But like you said, yeah, that's a bit of an overlooked... Um, Part of the story 
Um, I don't have a second one. I think basically just Stephen's treatment of Wong, but he does sort of make up for the for that directly afterwards, right, Billy? He says, "Oh, Wong, sorry. I'm I'm sorry. Come back. I just lost my temper. I'm tired. I'm hurt. I'm wounded. Please forgive me. I would never talk to you like this under ordinary circumstances." So he kind of smooths it over, but then Wong's subservient response again bugs me, right, Billy? He's again like, oh, master, you're forgiven. I understand. What kind of a servant would I be if I didn't understand? Oh, that's that's so terrible. <laughs> yeah, you have no need to apologize to Wong, master. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> no, 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 no. That That's just wrong. But, you know, that, that was the character of Stephen Strange, which Stanley and Ditko had established in the 60s, and they were still trying to move away from that. And um, much to their credit, the writers did. Steve Englehart and uh, you know, but Archie Goodwin at this point in time did not. He was very much writing him as a sort of a, the master talking down to a, a subordinate or a lesser being, which is wrong and yeah. just, just not right. But they eventually redeemed themselves. So, you know, I, I, I like that that fact. But, you know, this is it is what it is, right, Billy? And that's got to be my Mighty Marvel missteps <laughs> for this week. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like in this issue you get barry windsor smith and frank brunner i think they did a much better job of uh rendering wong as not you know uh how he had been previously how he was like you know very stereotypical mm. uh he he's, he's better in this in this one for sure i mean he almost looks like a little too much americanized but it's i'll take that over you know sometimes yeah. it was very horribly stereotypically drawn yeah, the so Fu Manchu i think portrayal. they did a good job yeah no I, yeah i, I think they did a much better job i agree here he looks more like a a shorter yule brenner <laughs> kind of yeah he does. which is uh, good because hey yule handsome guy you know um uh yeah so yeah they did a good job i agree and also with the art concerning you know the horror elements Yes, they could have ramped up the horror, I agree. Um, the tone is set by by Goodwin, you know, with the writing of that library sequence that we talked about. But the eventual reveal of, of Bethel's face, it wasn't that scary. You're right, Billy. So that was a good point on your part. I would piggyback on your, your comments there. Ex <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> forgive me, master. <laughs> no need, no need, Wong. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologize. Oh, we're so bad. <laughs> All right, listeners, that's it for this segment. Um, when we return, we'll head straight on into Shop Talk. So don't go away now. At first, I pushed the lever forward ever so slightly. And the laboratory grew faint around me. Billy, what have you been up to? What have you been reading? What have you been watching and collecting lately? Uh, well, I didn't have a chance to get to a shop lately, but I did hit a show today, a very, very small show. But it was uh, I had some good finds there, some uh, 1970s horror supernatural thrillers I was able to pick up, Tower of Shadows, Chamber of Chills, some really good uh, Bronze Age horror, you know, some new content and some reprints, but uh, I'll take whatever I can get because uh, even some of the the reprints are getting expensive in these day and age, unless you get them in a trade. Even the single-issue reprints are getting very expensive. Uh, 
That's right. Especially when they include some of the, the work of, you know, the, the Starankos of the world and people like that that were, you know, just getting started late 60s, early 70s. So I grabbed a few of those up. So that was the only thing I had uh, uh, recently that I was able to, to grab. And uh, I I just want to mention, if that's okay, Billy, to the listeners, you posted an image for me on, on Twitter um, of one of the comics in a gold key uh, issue of the Occult Files of Dr. Oh, Spectre. yes which I don't have, and I don't have very many of the Gold Key comics, not just the horror. I probably have almost n- none of their horror stuff. But, um, oh, man, you're so lucky to have found that. that. That's a real gem. How much did you pick that up for? Three, $3.50? $3.50. Whoa. Yeah, $3.50. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, you know, I'm not a huge Gold Key guy either, but uh, there was a uh, an artist, is it? santos jesse santos or something like that i think he did the cover it's almost like a man thing or swamp thing creature fighting of course an alligator uh because that's all they do yeah um (laughs) that's all swamp dislocate alligator's jaws yeah (laughs) yeah kill uh other creatures that you would think they'd be friends with but apparently not so uh (laughs) there are a couple of of those covers that even if like you know you and i talked uh earlier about uh off mic that even if the stories aren't so great or the uh, interior artwork sometimes isn't you know was nowhere near you know marvel or dc's uh level some of those painted covers are just incredible so if i can find uh and one of them you know on the cheap i'll, I'll grab them because they're good yeah this was a good get really billy i'm i'm envious also extremely <laughs> jealous <laughs> <laughs> just include me in your will buddy please. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They're all going to you. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I, I also want to ask you a question. I don't know. Have you um, been to the movies lately or, or has it been a while? I have not. It's been a while. It has been a while, quite a while, actually. Okay, well, I'm not going to mention any spoilers then, but um, since the last recording, I've uh, been to a couple of shows and I, I saw Captain Marvel and I really enjoyed it, Billy. I um, I I didn't think it would be my cup of tea. Not because you know I'm an anti-feminist or anything like that, or I'm against SJWs. I'm actually for them. You know, I support what they're doing. And uh, but I really, I've never been into the character of Captain Marvel, uh, Carol Danvers per se. I liked her when she was guest uh, a guest on the X Men comic, and just as you know, right after Rogue stole her powers, and uh, I never really knew her before that. You know, I never really encountered her. But um, I do like her personality. You know, uh, any woman who became an Air Force captain has to be a very strong-minded, um, powerful individual. And I really respect that. And she's always been very attractive to me. I, I'm attracted to those kind of people, you know, those independent kind of um, you stand-up-for-themselves kind of women. But, um, you know, the character itself, though, the power set, uh, the way Bendis wrote her in his Avengers run, has never been appealing to me. But this movie... Man, I enjoyed it. Um, my wife enjoyed it. My daughter enjoyed it. You know, she's seven, so I thought, hey, I'll take her. Um, and she wasn't disturbed by any of the the, the, the violent scenes or anything in there. Um, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, I know this is... Uh, I'm coming late to the to the party here because the Captain Marvel discussion's done now. Everyone on Twitter and all over the interwebs are talking about Shazam and, and all of that. And we're gearing up to, to head into Endgame. But I just wanted to mention this on the podcast that, you know, it's a good Marvel movie. It's it's definitely within my top 10. Um, and, yeah. I, you know, I've always been a fan of the cosmic side of, of Marvel and the Kree. And, of course, they make some decisions that I wouldn't have made. But uh, I don't want to spoil it for 
for somebody, but it, you know, everything we learn about the Skrulls is sort of turned on its head. Everything we've learned in comics. So uh, some decisions are made that, you know, I don't agree with, but I loved the movie as a whole. And I think it's very empowering for, for girls because um, this is what I'm getting to, Billy. My daughter walked out of the, the, the movie and she says, I want to be an Air Force captain. You know, and I said, wow. oh, you don't want to be a superhero who, who fights off alien dictators? No, no, no. I want to be an Air Force captain, <laughs> you know, and then oh wow! afterwards we went to a toy store, which is like right outside the movie theater, really great place to put a toy store <laughs> stacked with Marvel <laughs> toys. And she bought herself a, a Captain Marvel action figure. So, you know, she's been playing with that ever since. And um, for the last three weeks, it's a great feeling as a dad, you know, she, she's into comics you know, already, but now she's heavily into Captain Marvel. So uh, that can't be bad. You know, it's empowering and and um, she's getting so much joy out of it. So I just want to let the listeners know that I did, uh, even though I'm a Johnny come lately, I did eventually get to the movie and I saw it and I loved it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's to me, that's when you get these kids involved, that's they've, they've got to find a way, even if it's through the movies They've got to find a way to get kids, you know, back into comics, you know, one way or the other, because it's just, you know, it'll disappear if they don't get into them somehow. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's great. Speaking about that, yeah, um, you know, ever since then, she's been asking for Captain Marvel comics as well. And I happen to have the the first masterworks of um, Ms. Marvel lying around, the Ms. Marvel masterworks, and um, Mm -hmm. which I picked up on the cheap way back when. So I just handed it over and she's been paging through that thing but she also mentioned like but but daddy she doesn't look like she looks in the movie (laughs) (laughs) i'm like yeah this is you know this is the comics you just have to (laughs) take it with a grain of salt but yeah she's she's been loving that she's been paging through it and she's she's liking it you know so yeah that's it for for shop talk billy unless you have anything else i i can't think of anything on my side Nope, I'm good, thanks. Okay, then we'll head into one of the uh, my favorite segments, but possibly a segment that would get the young listeners to say, these old farts, and that is, get off my lawn. Welcome back, listeners, to Get Off My Lawn, a segment where I get to air my grievances, and hopefully, Billy, this will be cathartic for you, too. If there's anything on your chest, just throw (laughs) it out there. No judgments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'll start first, Billy, because I've been wanting to, you know, say this for a while, Um, and I don't think we've mentioned it on previous shows, Grant and I, so uh, this might be the time for it, but... Uh, I recently stopped by my LCS, uh, got a lot of good books, but I also got uh, some of Marvel's new fare, uh, specifically War of the Realms, which is happening. You know, it's it's spiraling out of the Thor books done by Jason Aaron and uh, Mike Del Mundo and Russell Dodderman and all those great guys. And I did, I do still enjoy the main Thor title, but. You know, since um, I recently read that and then I recently reread this Doctor Strange comic we did, Marvel Premiere Number 4, I came to a realization um, that, you know, we're not getting our money's worth out of new comic books. I mean, me, 
pers personally, I don't feel like I'm getting my money's worth. The comic books are very pricey, $3.99. And if you get it on a discount through a distribution service or from a store owner who sees you as a VIP or what whatever, you might pay $2.99 for it. But Billy, I mean, story-wise and content-wise, I got more out of the Doctor Strange comic and any Bronze Age comic, um, even, you know... Um, uh, Silver Age, if you go way back, even Golden Age might be the case. I just get more story, more art, more dialogue, more panels. I just feel like that's that's worth my money. Um, even if I have to pay a more expensive price for a vintage Doctor Strange Marvel Premiere number four, I, I take it over a new comic. Not because I don't like what they're doing in the new comics. The art is is oftentimes very arresting, spectacular, but you can see that digital edge to it, uh, which sometimes I don't mind if the story's still really good and if it features my favorite character. Like, okay, Billy, you mentioned you're a big Thor fan. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big Thor fan too. And I've got a little bit of a story that I will tell later about you know, how Into the Weird came to be uh, involving Grant and myself. Uh, and you'll appreciate that, but I'll get to that later. I love Thor and I will follow him you know, when I can. So I read the Jason Aaron stuff. Uh, I liked it. I like Esad Ribic's art. It's very Conan-esque. Um, in fact, he did a lot of Conan for Dark Horse um, in the early 2000s. And, you know, I that's why I read Thor. But now it's become, an another, uh, it's become another event. And now I have to buy comics all across the board. Um, not as much as I thought, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm now going to have this gap in my Thor knowledge because I'm, I'm actively deciding not to read it because, like I say, I don't feel like I'm getting enough story out of 22 pages. Um, and, and you have to spend that amount of money. Now, yeah, I, I know this is the reality of the industry at this time, but I, I just want to get that out, out there. I'd rather use my 399 to buy three Bronze Age comics that I don't have even if it's from characters I don't like, and get more of a story out of it. Uh, Billy, let me ask you a question. How long does it did it take you to reread the issue of Doctor Strange, the Marvel premiere number four? Uh, probably 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes at least. Exactly, right. That's, that's what it took me. I mean, when I really read it and, and tried to absorb it, I took 25 minutes. I timed myself the second time around. But with... You know, the newest, the, the War of the Realms, the, the first issue that came out uh, two weeks ago now, or, or a week ago, sorry, a week ago, it took me 10 minutes, all of 10 minutes. And, you know, I'm not a particularly fast reader. I like to, you know, peruse the panels. I like to pour over the, the dialogue. I like to, you know, really absorb everything, especially the art. But the art's great, but, you know, I, I wasn't feeling it. It's just... A quick read and three ninety nine, and that's it. I'm probably going to give it to someone, you know, saying, "Hey, I'm uh, a kid or something." Like, would you like to read this? So that's yeah. that's my get off my lawn. I I don't feel that, but you know, I'm an old guy. I <laughs> younger <laughs> listeners or even some some of listeners our age might disagree with me. They they agree that whatever Marvel's putting out now is quality. It is quality. It's just not you know what I want. And um, unfortunately, that's me, and that's my two cents on the matter. But I don't know, yeah. Billy. Uh, do you agree with me? I mean, there are great I, titles oh, out there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think it's just it's just not like you said. I think there's a lot of quality stuff right now. 
it's just a matter of taste. And uh, I would prefer something like a Bronze Age book just because, you know, it just there was something about certain ages. And I know sometimes it falls back on what you read first. And that's what, like, you think is always best with, you know, comics or music or whatever. I mean, that's not the case with me, but I know a lot of people, you know, are that way. But I just think there was something about comics uh, in the silver and bronze ages, especially when you're talking about Marvel, that, you know, they just have uh, an air of mystery about them. Like, stuff, like, it would pull you in. A lot of the books right now I don't feel pull you in at all. You really don't care a whole lot about the characters. And maybe that's because, you know, every yeah. other week somebody dies and then two months later they come back or there's a new number one every year. I, I'm not sure, but it's just it's not you don't really care for about those characters like you did mm, back good then. Point. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the risk of sounding hypocritical here, a couple of uh, episodes ago, I really uh, pushed hard for Jason Aaron's Thor. Uh, uh, sorry, his Avengers run. You know, I really... Um, plug that series it, it's a great series but it's since also followed the um the path of becoming boring and and not interesting to me anymore and um you know so uh listeners if you listen to a couple of episodes back you might hear me saying well this is the best thing ever but sometimes i like that you know i'm feeling it at the moment and you know um i read it in a chunk you know, the Jason Aaron Avengers run that he's doing now, I didn't read it single issues, you know, uh, one once a week or once a month. So I was, I, I sort of let it stack up and then I read five in a row and then I'm like, whoa, this is cool. But actually, if you look at just a single comic, it doesn't give you a lot of story. You know, mm. it gives you lots of great art, lots of splash panels and huge, uh, amazing, you know, uh, fight sequences. But um, uh, ultimately... Is it really worth it? I should just have waited for the trade or something and, and gotten that on a uh, discount or something. That would have been better because then I could have read it in a, in a whole chunk and gotten the same kind of uh, pleasure out of out of reading a single Bronze Age comic, maybe. So um, uh, please support comics, support new comics, um, wh- whatever the guys are putting out there. They're working hard. They're doing a great job. But I'm just saying that for me, I, I, I want them to give us more story. And I'm hoping they can swing that somehow. Put more story, put more meat in there. Um, and so that it won't just be a 10-minute quick flip through. But uh, that's my uh, rant done with Billy. I'm, I apologize to the listeners. <laughs> but this is kind of therapy for me. <laughs> so just, just yeah. you guys are my therapists. and uh, Just let me talk. <laughs> now, Billy, what about you? Is there anything, <laughs> anything that, that particularly... Uh, disturbed you or that you want to get off your chest only one really quick one and that is it seems like a lot of the creators that are still um able to work and that are still with us are not really getting much work at all or at least not for many of the bigger companies they're having to you know do their own thing or just take whatever they can get and it's kind of sad i wish you know yeah. Some of these creators, like you see people like Bob Layton and Dave Michelini, and they're sure. still working somewhat in like, you know, some smaller avenues. But, you know, yeah, those thinking, guys, you know, were good at their job. They, they could still be working and still be doing some pretty good stuff. And it's just I think it's a shame they don't get the opportunity to even try it. Walt Simon's in, you know, his yeah. wife, Weezy. Jerry Ordway. Uh, Jerry Ordway. Yes. Oh, yes. There's so many good creators still out there. And it's just a shame you don't see them working very much. And. I think to myself, that's you still have gold there. They can still produce really, really good stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, it's it's important to find new talent, and there's lots of new talent out there. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I'd like to see more of the stuff from the older um, folk again, you know. Uh, but but make it a balancing act, you know. Give us a lot of new stuff, but also give us a lot of the older guys. And I mean, they had really really good art, highly detailed, and digital sort of, in, in most cases, ruins that. But if, if you've got a really yeah. talented digital inker, I'm thinking they could do wonders with, let's say, an old school penciler stuff. You know, if, if, if they're right. doing uh, a new story, you get someone like Jerry Ordway and you get a good digital inker. Hey, it, it, I, I'm sure it'll look great. Uh, he, it probably has been done, you know. Um, Ordway yeah. might be doing it himself. Who knows? He might have, uh, you know, he might be working digitally, at least on the inking side. Who knows? But still... You know, I agree with you, Billy. Get them more work. Get them out there. And and let Marvel and DC reprint more of the old stuff. There's so many right. things they have been reprinting and putting in hardcover, but they've also skimped on great runs that I really want to see in print. Uh, I mean, in collections, in hardcover collections. And that would also increase, you know, um, uh, people's knowledge of these old guys and what they gave to the industry. And one of the reasons I would love to see that as well is because and this is especially on Marvel's part, they don't compensate uh, the older creators very well, even when they do you know, reproduce their work from decades ago. They, it's laughable what they get. Right. The, it's, it's, it might as well be pennies. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. You know, DC seems to be better at taking care of uh, their creators that you know, aren't working anymore, but the, I think it will, if, you, if you're not going to compensate them for you know, when you know put stories out again and reproduce and trades and stuff like that, then give them some work now or something. Like it just seems a shame to me that these guys are, you know, I don't want to say withering away, but some of them are getting up there, but they could still be working. And it's just a shame. That's right. No, I agree with you. If you have a, a Marvel movie or a DC movie and then you name drop a creator, that's great. But what that's going to lead to is recognition, of course, but it's also going to lead to fans seeking out the Marvel and DC books that was done by that creator on that particular movie or characters that they that they did, you know? So who would get the profit? Who would get the money? DC, you know, Marvel, when their trades yeah. sell, you know, um, it's, uh, like you say, a pittance that's given to the original creator. So it's a shame. Um, but I, I know there are people actively fighting for that kind of thing um, at the moment. Yeah. And hopefully... Um, I don't know. I think the Hero Initiative has something to do with that too, doesn't it, Billy? They've got lawyers working on that, and um, I'm not sure. I, I need to do some more research there, but I'm thinking this is a good cause to support. If there's any, you know, uh, things like um, you know things we can donate to or Patreon sites out there, we better look that up, and then we can uh, include that in the next show if you want, Billy, and then let the listeners know where they could go if they want to support the older guys whom we all love. You know, um, definitely, yep. yeah. So um, I know Hero Initiative. Hero Initiative is a big one. That's that's the biggest one I know of that they really help to try to to take care of those guys. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so a good point, very good point, and uh, a better rant than mine. Mine was very puerile. <laughs> Billy, yours was more <laughs> controlled and also more useful to the overall <laughs> scheme of humanity. <laughs> so I appreciate that. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll head on into our final segment, final two segments, I should say, Billy, which would be the Allies of Agamotto and our Nexus of All Reviews. 
So again, keep listening, listeners. We'll be back in a jiffy. In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2. Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel's superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and Beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. This week, for our Allies of Agamotto segment, I just want to give a shout-out to the following people who left comments on our last show post that we put on Twitter. And they were Professor Frenzy, Jerry from the Professor Frenzy show. He said that it's a great episode, terrific work. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that, Prof. Thanks for listening and always retweeting and helping us to promote and support the show. We really appreciate it. And then a new listener, Jenny Didas. She also made some comments in the form of emojis. <laughs> so thanks for that, Jenny. Much appreciated. And then Laurel um, from Laurel at Mountain Flower. Laurel used to do a podcast as well. Um, and she commented uh, asking about the blog if we were going to put on some pictures. And then she said she will listen to it as soon as possible. And um, the podcast she used to run is uh, Feathers and Foes, a Birds of Prey podcast. You can find Laurel at Mountainflower1 on Twitter. Uh, so thanks for those folks. And of course, I also want to express my gratitude to everyone who retweeted and liked our last uh, posts about our previous show, Episode 6. Um, you really helped us to get the show out there and get more listeners and that's always a boon to us so thank you very much everyone all right now we've got a special uh, bit of the show coming up uh, the nexus of all reviews and we're spotlighting a particular five-star review on itunes this week uh, by our good buddy Slangword scott now scott left this review last year but we're finally getting to him um, because he left us a five-star review, we're going to give him his own Marvel Bronze Age superhero alter ego, as we are wont to do on the show. So, Scott, I hope you like this. I did a bit of research, and I found that you're a Superman fan. Looking at your profile picture on Twitter, I see you're posing with the Golden Age Superman, a cutout of him. So I took a little bit of that into account, but I also wanted to kept it, keep it I should say, in the Marvel Universe. So I tweaked it a bit. I'm not giving you Superman's origin. I'm going a bit of a different route here. So I hope you like it. All right, without further ado, let's get to this. Slangword Scott's superhero alter ego. Rocketed as a baby from the doomed planet Hala in the far future of the Marvel 616 Universe, 
Cree infant Roland's multiversal cradle was damaged in the explosion triggered by the death throes of his expiring world. Though still hopping through dimensions and scanning for a safe reality in which to raise the child, a process that would take years, the cryosleep education functions of the Cree cradle's plexi mind were sadly fried. This resulted in the ship imprinting the language centers of its young charge, not with the intricacies and poetry of the supremely subtle High Cree language, but with the vulgar and forbidden Lower Cree slang that had originated centuries before when Rick Jones visited the Cree Empire. The Cree dimension hopping cradle continued to careen around realities like a ping pong ball, frequently bringing the young Roland in contact with entities beyond the ken of most mortals. These beings were not immune to the adorable nature of the blue-skinned ball of baby fat, and more often than not sought to connect with the young Cree between universal jumps when his cradle needed to recharge in the light of alien suns. And so, the infant Rolan jonesed on piggyback rides from eternity and the living tribunal, subsisted on the cosmic milk of Odhumla, the Asgardian space cow, was bathed in the primordial soup of nascent worlds by celestials, was burped by watchers on more than one occasion, his diaper rash soothed by Mistress Death herself at least twice. Finally, years later, after many adventures, Roland's cradle blinked into the realm of the Beyonder. The omnipotent being immediately became fascinated with this alien infant orphan and its incoherent jive talk baby babbling. After applying the full might of his omniscience and still not comprehending even an iota of the gibberish the boy was spouting, the Beyonder decided to send young Roland on his way, but not without a parting gift, for he had grown quite fond of this insignificant speck of dust. He blessed the babe with a smidgen of his reality manipulation powers and allowed the child's dimension-hopping cradle to transport him to a more hospitable environment. Unfortunately for the young Cree, this environment turned out to be 20th century Earth. Adopted by a kindly farmer and his wife, who were surprised that their alien son spoke a dialect of English they could vaguely understand. You can thank Rick Jones for that. Young Roland grew up tall and strong. The Beyonder's gift soon manifested itself in his teenage years, when the young Cree learned that whatever low Cree slang he spoke during times of stress would result in its literal interpretation by the fabric of the universe, making the necessary alterations to reality to fit the parameters and specifications of Roland's slang-infused phrases. Testing his newfound power on school bullies, utterances like, blow it out your wazoo, and go piss up a rope, would frequently yield hilarious results. While phrases like, tear you a new asshole, or she's having a meltdown, could have painful and often deadly consequences. 
Roland soon became a full-fledged superhero and was drafted to join the Avengers, making short work out of foes like Loki and Ultron. Unfortunately, the Kree warrior accidentally committed a major faux pas during the battle against Thanos in Wakanda. This happened just after Thor had delivered a mortal blow to the Mad Titan and followed that up with a scathing and rather brilliant Asgardian one-liner, which he spat in Thanos' face. Roland couldn't help overhearing this bit of witty repartee and whispered to himself, Aw, snap! Two words that doomed half of all existence. Roland's whereabouts are currently unknown, but rumor has it that he has retired to social media platforms where he is rebuilding reality one slang word at a time, delivering blistering and often fatal takedowns to trolls, bigots, and any other intolerant shit that so much as tweets his way. It is expected that he will play a major role in Avengers Endgame, which will hopefully result in him finally getting his own action figure, an honor he so richly deserves. So give it up for the Paragon of Jargon, the Jive Juvenile, the Archon of Argon, the Prince of Patois, Roland, the Slang Slinger. And that's it. Scott Rowland, everybody, the Slang Slinger. Hope you like that, Scott. Let us know. <laughs> if you hate it, I'm sorry. I'll try to come up with something else, but I'll send that to you privately. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we're heading into our goodbye segment where Billy and I will bid you all farewell. And uh, it's been a blast. Before I do that, though, I just want to say that, um, Grant, if you're listening, buddy, I miss you a lot. Thanks for six episodes of fun. And I think we achieved a level of greatness <laughs> that we never did before. Funny story, Grant and I actually did podcast before we started Into the Weird, but most of our shows were a bit of a failure. But um, we finally hit it with Into the Weird and found something special there. So, grand old buddy, um, I hope you come back one day. I'll be waiting. But until then, Billy and I would keep the home fires burning and um, definitely uh, keep your seat warm. So come back anytime. We miss you, bud. Look at that. What is it? We're heading off into the end, aren't we, Billy, of the show. And um, before we leave, I just want to remind the listeners that way before Into the Weird, way before you came into our orbit, so to speak, um, uh, long before Grant and I even attempted you know, to establish an online presence, you were already the man when it came to uh, horror magazines and comics and... Um, Twitter and also blogging and you were even writing reviews 
for comic book sites before. Uh, and we're talking about as far back as 15, 10 years ago. So I want you to, since you're going to be uh, uh, one of our permanent guests and uh, permanent host of Into the Weird podcast, I want the listeners to know a little bit more about what you're up to other than podcasting on Into the Weird. So, Billy, can you tell us a little bit more about magazines and monsters? I'm, I've always been curious about that. How did you start the blog and, and what led you to eventually um, establishing the website of magazines and monsters? Well, that was something that I never even thought of. Um, I was writing for a couple of different websites at a, a breakneck pace and got pretty burned out within three years. Um, so, and I felt bad too, because you know you have editors that are waiting for you to turn stuff in. So it just got way too hectic with the schedule and 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 bit of a burnout. So I thought to myself, I wonder what else I could do because I wanted to keep the, the creativity going, you know, and keep talking about this medium we all love. So a friend of mine who had already had his blog and been doing podcasting, and uh, he suggested, he's like, well, why don't you do your own, uh, you know, blog and website? And I said, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And I thought, oh, I wonder how tough this is going to be. And I use WordPress and I found it very easy to use. I mean, I had been using that already. Uh for one of the sites I had written for. So the aesthetics were, you know, pretty familiar to me. So I got using that and I thought, yep, this is good because you can just go at your own pace. You know, it's good to have a good schedule, you know, you know, do a, a post. And I usually have one every Monday fire off, but uh, you can still do it at your own pace. You can work ahead, you know, you can wait till the last minute if that's all the time you have. You know, you're not really putting any pressure on an editor or anyone else. So yeah. I transitioned to that in 2013 it was. So a little over five years I've been doing the blog and just having a blast with it. You know, I can do a goofball Silver Age Superman <laughs> story where he's, you know, acting like a buffoon or I can do a horror comic, you know, from, you know, Marvel. It's, it, it's the, you're not really confined to you know one uh, character or one company you can you can you know there's a lot of freedom to it so i'm really glad i switched over to that and then uh i've been doing that ever since that's an awesome story and a great great bit of origin uh story for the magazines and monsters site <clears throat> um and billy then you and i are both big horror fans so we we're both on the facebook group the united nations of horror and um, obviously, mm -hmm. other than comics, you and I talk about a lot of uh, horror films and so forth. We're, we're both big Hammer fans. And um, I think this is the right time to uh, mention a bit of an announcement on your end of things um, of something that listeners can look forward to other than Into the Weird. <laughs> uh, would you tell us more about that? Yeah, so... Uh, magazines and monsters, you know, my blog, it's going to transition into, you know, also being a, a podcast. And when I actually first started the blog, I used to do a weekly film review as well. So every Sunday I would have a film review drop, but probably after about two years of that, I slowly waned and it went to every two weeks and then only one a month to where it's just comics now. Cause it was just a lot of work. I mean, those movie reviews, I mean, I'd watch the movie straight through and then I'd have it on a second time almost back to back as I was writing about the film as well. So, I mean, you're looking at probably at least six hours every week just dedicated just to a movie review. So that got to be tough, but I'm definitely transitioning to the podcast now and it's going to be every two weeks and rotating between uh, a comic book 
and then uh, a movie as well. And, you know, films for me are just, like you said, it's it's a huge part of my life too. Hammer and even Amicus and all the other smaller studios with, you know, their sci-fi and horror. It's just a huge part of my life. So I want to get back to that. And uh, getting into the podcast is a, a definite way to do that. So really, really looking forward to that. That's awesome, Billy. Well, I mean, listeners can find that podcast, Magazines and Monster. Uh, magazines and monsters podcast on itunes um and also on uh, stitcher and any other platforms billy that were, where it's available it actually didn't get approved for itunes yet still waiting on itunes approval but it's through anchor so you can go to anchor and find it there and it's on spotify um and stitcher and i think it's getting approved for a couple more too um in the very near future but you can definitely find it on those right now Great. That's the promo that you um, uploaded sometime last week, and I've listened to it twice already, and I'm so psyched for it because it's right in my wheelhouse, monsters and uh, monster movies and films, and especially Hammer films. (laughs) (laughs) So, Billy, no, that's going to be a great listen, man. I'm going to really appreciate that. But um, I've already um, put you down as a guest on the long box of darkness are we still on for that i hope you oh yes absolutely yeah that should be that should be happening very soon too yeah you and i will we'll get something cooking here after the show we'll get that ironed out too sure if you ever want me i mean this is just me hinting at possibly you know you having me on as a guest on magazine and and monsters as well (laughs) oh absolutely yeah yeah. you'll be there'll be a lot of there'll be a lot of familiar voices on that one as far as you know uh the the twitter family i have because everybody on twitter has really been uh we have a nice little community there with you know maybe 20 or 30 people that are very very good to each other and yeah very knowledgeable too yeah i love the positive positivity on our uh in our twitter group (coughs) everybody learns from everybody else and i've i've learned so much over the last two years alone from all of you guys and yeah that's that's where i'm that's my happy place during the day is Twitter. In the mornings and in the evenings, <laughs> I spend about half an hour or an hour, you know, on Twitter a day. So is it healthy? I don't know, but, you know, it feels healthy to me, <laughs> psychologically speaking. <laughs> so, Billy, thanks, man. I, I'm really glad you um, introduced your projects to the listeners. I'm sure they'll check it out since they're also of like minds. And um, that about does it for uh, this bit of the show finally Billy I just want you to mention where can we find you on Twitter <clears throat> um, like you said earlier in the show it's at Billy Delicious or just Doc Strange and of course you can <clears throat> see my avatar Peter Cushing <laughs> so there we go with the hammer connection <laughs> <laughs> oh classic classic I recently yeah, Peter post- Cushing drinking yeah. a spot of tea <laughs> oh man uh, such such uh, uh, a gentleman, <laughs> a gentleman mm. of horror. All of those guys. He were, was a good know. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was a good one. Yeah, he's my favorite um, horror actor. Christopher Lee being second, and Vincent mm-hmm. Price probably Vincent Price tied with Christopher Lee. But Cushing, man, what a what an actor's actor, really a talented guy. So look for that avatar, listeners, if you want to find Doc Strange on Twitter. And <laughs> Billy, I just want to, want to once again thank you. Um, for agreeing to be on the show and filling in for Grant and uh, being our third host. Um, it's it's a permanent position. Um, I know it takes a big chunk of your time, but I'm hoping it's enjoyable. So I really appreciate that, man. Thanks. Well, I appreciate you having me on, Herman. It's great, man. Thank you. <laughs> great, listeners. Well, that's it for another episode of Into the Weird. We'll be back in two weeks' time. 
uh, with a surprise comic. We're not going to mention what, um, but you can expect to hear from us pretty soon. Until then, keep it weird. This is Herman and Billy saying goodbye and good night. Just came to 